Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Commitment Matters. Tish Bush is my guest today, and we're talking disruption and disruptors. You've probably noticed some new players coming into the real estate space that look and act a little bit different than much of what we've seen in the past. Today's conversation focuses on that phenomenon, and together we work to sort through much of what's happening. We look at why disruptors are attracted to our industry, some things to consider in that realm, and how to find your footing in a world that we understand the fundamentals of, but it's at a time when big tech is coming knocking. We know it can be easy to feel like a traditional taxi cab driver in a market where Uber is arriving on the scene. Tish makes it her business to understand nuances large and small in the settlement industry. She has over 30 years experience in the business. She's the principal of TDB Advisors, which is a consulting firm specializing in operations management. She has worked for large national underwriters, hiring, training, mentoring, and leading all aspects of operations. Tish has also worked for title agents, launching new divisions, rebuilding operations, and managing the closure of offices. Most recently, Tish has been engaged in consulting work for title agents, assisting with operations management, quantifying the business, analyzing costs, documenting detailed processes, hiring local staff, providing on-the-ground training and support, developing benchmarking and metrics so they can effectively manage their performance. In short, she knows her stuff. So please enjoy this conversation with Tish Bush. Tish, welcome to Commitment Matters. We're so happy to have you here. Thanks, Mary. I'm looking forward to being here today. You have been very intrigued by the potential for disruptors and disruption in our business. And I know you've taken some deep dives with that. So I'm looking forward to talking with you about that today. So let's just start sort of at the 30,000 foot level and let's explain what makes our industry, which tends to be viewed as sort of sleepy and sort of a, a niche industry, what makes that attractive in appearance to those who might want to act as disruptors in this space? First of all, probably foremost for anyone looking at our space, it's considered to be a $14 billion business. So there's a lot of money on the table. That's probably primary for most of the companies that are interested in entering the space. I think historically there's been a lot of frustration because there's a lot of monopoly type entities that have been in and around the market for so many years. So whether you know perception or reality, I think that's what causes a lot of people to want to jump in. Coupled with, if you look at the technology, we continue to be a pretty low tech industry. I think all that combined um, has made this an extremely interesting place for a lot of people to start focusing, particularly a lot of these venture capital firms that we've seen start entering the market pretty aggressively since 2015 or 2016. I think that that would be a surprise to a lot of our listeners who are mom and pop title and settlement agents, as we know the majority of title agencies are held by small mom and pop entities. And so they may not, it may not be first and foremost in their mind that we are this $14 billion industry that is viewed as not having a lot of competition and not having a lot of technology. For someone who's sitting in that perspective to say, you know, I I certainly don't see my business or my place in that business as being this attractive, I guess it's good to understand some of the perspective of some of the other 
folks looking from the outside into this industry understand that they view it quite differently. Yes, absolutely. What you're seeing is, you know, first on the real estate side, you saw things really start to change back in the late 90s. Primarily what I mean is, you know, prior to that, it was somewhat of a 6% commission model. The realtors really owned that multiple listing service. And then with the expansion of the internet, you saw realtor.com start making a lot of that data more available to the consumer. And it's really just continued to morph. And now we're starting to see it enter slowly, but start to enter the title industry space. So it almost is a natural progression that you're seeing. One that caught my attention was the, not just realtor.com, but Realty One, and this goes back to 05, when they started offering, not the 6% commission, but the administration fee. It really started to change the face of how things were done. I think, you know, Zillow joined in 2006, and that to me was kind of the, the point when you started to see a lot of these old technology or people that had been in on the technology side start to enter our space. Zillow, I know, was two former Microsoft executives, and there's been a lot of them since then. So it's interesting to see, and I think that's the low tech element or that excitement for them to come in and make a difference similar to where they have in other places is what's really drawn them to us. And a lot of it is just purely using data and metrics and analytics as they enter the space. On paper, we look like an insanely profitable business, right? Especially if you use a PNC model when comparing most especially our claims payout ratios. Unfortunately, we have a lot of even state regulators who are involved with regulating our business who aren't necessarily appreciative of the difference of us between the PNC model, meaning that we don't have the reoccurring annual premiums and we do have a method before we take on the risk to mitigate to a high degree and in in many cases, if we do our curative work properly, almost eliminate risk, which is very different than a PNC model where, you know, you can't control, for example, if a tornado hits tomorrow or, you know, a loss occurs like that. And so when you stack up the fact that we don't have annual or, or quarterly premiums paid to us and that we're able to really mitigate a lot of the risk out, that starts to make some of our differences in our claims payout versus a PNC model very relevant. But unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't make those distinctions in their minds. So they just sort of see these, air quotes, big revenues, low payouts, and also trying to get into the entire ecosystem of a real estate transaction and title and settlement can look like a very productive place to be in there, regardless of the old joke of we lose money on every transaction and make it up in volume. So what are your thoughts about the dichotomy between the reality from that agent's perspective and perhaps of some of these newer investors into the space about that appeal and whether that's accurate or there's just a little disconnect there? Well, I think there's definitely a bit of a disconnect. I mean, part of what you just discussed is why it's so hard to explain to people that aren't in our industry what we do and the value that we're bringing. I think we've all been through that over and over and over again. Particularly on paper, I think title insurance companies pay out 3 to 4% on claims. And if you look at car insurance or home insurance, they're usually paying out upwards of 80%. So that's a tough sell to explain the difference there. And I think, you know, those of us that have a long history in the industry understand. Certainly my experience with some of the companies entering the industry, 
I think the biggest place that I've seen misinformation is that where they're missing that historical information or historical value. What they think is that it's so easy they can create an Excel spreadsheet for all 50 states. It's pretty easy. This is how you do title. You know, I very recently had a discussion with one of the disruptors and they thought they could teach title in three weeks for all 50 states. And, you know, I kind of sat back and took a deep breath because I, you know, I'm 30 plus years and I couldn't tell you about title in all 50 states. Well, that's, that can be part of the hazard with the disruptor too, right? Is they don't know what they don't know. Exactly. And I think as they get started, I've seen that time and time again. Fact remains that going back to the mom and pops, you need someone who's an expert in every county and every state because there's enough nuances in that. So there's different ways to go about gaining the knowledge and the information. But certainly, you know, three weeks to learn every county and every state is definitely, you know, not something where I think they could do it flawlessly on day one with that type of mindset and training program. There's a lot of similarities, absolutely, and I wouldn't disagree with that. But if you look at, you know, how you close a real estate transaction in the state of California versus, you know, pick the state of New Jersey, there's almost no similarities for it. So it's completely different. You know, you could pick on every other state and come up with similar things. I think it's important for those of us sitting, let's say, established in the business. It's great to see disruption in a supply chain or a logistics arena where you're just a customer, where you can just sort of sit back and watch the benefits. But it's when it's your industry coming to be disrupted, that means you're going to get disrupted. That's a little bit different equation. And I think it sounds like we need to understand that these investors, and we'll talk about some of the sizes, I hope, of some of these, um, some of this venture capitalist money, but it's not just about getting in the title and settlement space or getting in the title and settlement software space, or they're looking at the entire transaction from the beginnings of the buyer thinking about to all the way through selection, through financing and post home ownership. It's not just this little narrow lane that is title and settlement is my guess. Because what we hear from a lot of these folks that are sort of new to the space is, well, we want to be the Uber of the entire real estate ecosystem or the Amazon of the entire process. So do you have to look at these from sort of that perspective of how they can create an entire alternative universe or what's your thoughts been on that? Up till now, we've really seen kind of two types of disruption. One is really what I would call enablement. And that's just more of a company that's developing technology that's going to come in and integrate with the different players. We've seen some of those enter the marketplace. I think the second type would be a complete disruptor. And they're coming in and they want to displace all the everything that's been done and really kind of wipe it clean and start over. You know, and I, I think part of the problem, at least with that disruptor, is that some of them have entered the, entered the marketplace and they're bringing in a lot of brain power and a lot of very highly educated people, but not a lot of um, title and settlement experience is sitting down at that table as they're making decisions. And I think that's where starting to see some of them make some missteps moving forward just because they don't know what they don't know. You know, my opinion is that it's it's best to have both some experience and your bench strength sitting at the table in addition to a lot of that brain power and high education. And I, I'm a huge proponent of change in our industry. I think absolutely there's a lot that could be done that would be better for all of us whether it be the realtor, the title agent, the attorneys, the underwriters. I just think that, 
you know, you can't completely overlook the entire history of it as you sit down and try to change things over. And I think that's where, you know, as we see kind of who continues and who escalates at the fastest pace will be dictated by kind of who they're choosing to sit at that decision-making table. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's start with that. I I like the way that you broke those into two separate categories. You said we have those that are focusing on enablement and those that are kind of more in the true disruption space. So let's start with that disruption group. We don't have to name anybody by name, but what types of things are we seeing there that are uh, probably a little slower to get purchase on things because of that sort of maybe lack of fundamental understanding of the underpinnings of the business. I mean, I think you have some that are trying to enter the space, trying to run more of a national model, what I would call a virtual title agent. The second piece or component to that was not understanding that relationships are involved and how important those relationships are. So the mindset was along the lines of, we can essentially buy this book of business and because we've bought the book of business, we will then get all the orders to come to us. And it, and they're gonna help us do that, even though they used to get paid commission on this business, now they're gonna help us. So all those orders, refinance orders, will come to us, we'll close them, and it'll be just fine. They'll tell us everything that we need to know. You know, and I heard that and that, you know, kind of stopped me cold listening to it, because I'm of the opinion, having been in and around this industry for a long time, the hardest thing to change is that relationship. I mean, you know, we all have said this for years and years and years, and we all do the same thing, but it's the service. It's how we interact with our customers that keeps them coming back. I think we've all used the phrase, we're only as good as our last closing. And I think there's a lot of truth and value to that. As you look at that, they may have had the same knowledge on how to close the transaction, but completely ignoring the fact that you're changing relationships that could be 20 or 30 years strong, I think there's a bit of a misstep on that historical. I came off uh, the the settlement space um, in one of the jobs that I had, and it was hard for me to understand that. I had a network of 35,000 vendors across the United States that it was my job to help manage and make sure I was driving business to the best of the best. And even as we developed a quality rating mechanism um, for each of the closings, what I'd find is that, you know, if someone had a strong relationship, they would forgive them for the mistakes that they made because of that long-standing relationship, even if I could put a better vendor in who made fewer mistakes. And a lot of these models, and I'm speaking now from, for example, the venture capital funding side of the equation, what they look at is, I would imagine that it's somewhat predicated on, all right, here's this existing ecosystem of business we're going to get inserted in there and we're going to, let's say, up the value proposition for the consumer, but then we'll also be able to carve out some of these revenues that today are going to existing stakeholders and or we will create this platform, this ecosystem, and then charge the individual providers to be a part of that and sort of reroute some of the traditional money flow in the transaction. Is that what you're seeing with regard to those, the desires of those who are investing in these potential disruptions? I think there's a lot of different players right now that are trying to step in and disrupt. And I I think that's definitely one scenario. I think there's a number of others trying to automate all the information that till now is very paper intensive is probably one of the strongest that you see of people entering wanting to disrupt one of your 
former colleagues had made a phrase to me one day. I could, we were talking about the um, remote notarization and closings. And I first started that, gosh, probably 10, 15 years ago, again, in a job that I had in the past. And it makes me smile because we couldn't sell it then. And as I've looked at it again over the last 12 to 24 months, a lot of the same challenges are being faced. And the phrase that was used with me was, well, yeah, because even a millennial wants to sit down and take a selfie at the closing table. And I thought that was very well said because we as an industry would love that to happen. It'd be so much easier for us as title agents, be so much easier for the lender, but we are still seeing that most consumers want that experience. It's a huge purchase in their life and they want to touch it and feel it. They don't want, just want to sit in front of their computer. We're starting to hear in, in conversations and questions about this is, there's not enough margin per transaction to institute a bunch of new click fees or, uh, you know, if, I, if I'm looking at this again as a venture capitalist who, you know, I'm not an underwriter who ultimately ends up holding the liability. Maybe I should have some participation with agencies or participation with software. But if I'm really just a venture capitalist looking to do the next big disruptive thing, to become the Uber or the Amazon, we're starting to hear a lot of questions in our industry about, isn't this all just really a data play? Isn't this about monetizing consumer activities just like Amazon? If you're, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product sort of things. If you're part of the business that might be disrupted, you don't want to run towards every possibility when it first presents itself, but you also want to be the right place with the right posture at the right time. So if you owned Tisha's title company today and you were looking to at least monitor, if not participate in some of these things that are evolving, what are the types of things you would keep your eye on the most? And we're still in the disruptor category. Closings, absolutely. And, and by closings, what I mean is everything from signing your docs electronically. There's a lot of different technologies out there available for that. I think staying knowledgeable and up to speed on whatever states you're doing business in, what are they allowing for remote notarization? I think, you know, each state can be so different. I've used the California model. You, you want a title and you click a button and you have it within a minute or two, picking on more of a data-driven state where they have to go down and search in the county office. It can take weeks. I think more and more counties that used to require mailing in of recorded documents are changing quickly. I think you saw some of that happen in the last 12 months. So keeping an eye on that. I think staying in the know on technology too is critically important. Who are the new players entering the market? What are they offering? Some of the front end pieces that were in use 10 or 15 years ago that are still in use today. And I'm talking about um, the platforms that would connect the lender to the title companies. Those were so hard and clunky and difficult to use. There's a lot of new companies and technology out there, and I think some of the big lenders have built their own proprietary systems. I think all that is a good place to start so that you're educated and on the forefront of what's available. I'm going to come back to that first group you mentioned that are increasing enablement and fulfillment. What are some of the things going on there that agents in particular should be paying attention to? Well, I think there's some opportunities for agents, particularly some of the smaller agents. There's different people entering the space where they get the benefit in the economy of scale that they perhaps weren't necessarily getting before. So I think you're seeing companies enter the market that would offer them that. 
I think some of the workflow management is going to be key. As you look at a lot of the old historical systems, so you definitely don't want to stay, you know, behind on that. I think there can be a lot of benefits to that. You know, at the same time, and being on the operations side for so long, I also think that could be a tough space to enter because as you're getting started on that, you know, now you're using emails, you're using voicemail and phone calls, and now if you are adding text to that, you have to watch the impact to your staff. I think that's great for your customer and you're offering an enhanced service, but it's something to really keep an eye on and tread carefully as you enter into that realm. Some of the companies that are offering enablement with some of the more technology forward solutions, even on that national model side, I think some of these big players will be very successful at it. And particularly those that I'm most interested in are the ones entering that space that are doing exactly what I'd mentioned a few minutes ago. They're bringing in brain power, but they're also bringing in a great bench strength of people that have the title and settlement knowledge and experience. I know you are an analytics-driven manager. You love analytics. You have experience in drilling right down to the heart of what needs to change in the company by looking at the analytics. And so we're starting to hear a lot more about business intelligence as it relates to title and settlement too. I'm guessing you keep pretty well on the forefront of the possibilities there. The data really tells the story. You know, and a lot of times what I've found in my career path is people don't like that, but you really can 98% of the time look at what's happening in your business metrically. A lot of times though, the human element enters and people you know, want to make excuses or offer solutions outside of that. But I think that a lot of these disruptors entering the space and, and the enablers are looking at the same thing, if you will, parsing out the data to say, what does this say? What does this mean? And I think that's part of what you're seeing too, is that as they see it and they look at it, and I don't have a good example of this right now, but I think a lot of them are of the same opinion because we really are metrics driven. I think in a lot of cases, we've just chosen not to use them over time. And I think that particularly now, as a lot of our population within the industry are aging out, I think we're going to see more of a transfer to that. Some of it's just going to be forced on us by the new leadership entering. And a lot of those variables that are more critical to them, just kind of given where they're at in their career paths. When you're working with individual title and settlement companies, I have found, as I work with them, that... They intuitively understand the flow of the business by deals, and they are somewhat comfortable going to the data to validate what they intuitively know by virtue of years in the business. So, for example, if I ask somebody that's not currently measuring routinely, how many closings do you do a month, or how many FTEs are required to support your number of closings a month, They'll tell me their gut answer, and then we'll go to the data to verify things like that, and that they're usually right on the money. But there is another group of business, just key business management concepts or metrics that they are not going to the data to verify, and they may or may not have an instinct on that. For example, what's the ROI on your fill-in-the-blank, this system, or what more slack capacity do you have before you need to make another hire? Some of those general business principles are things that we could really have agents going. Is that what you find uh, when you're in the trenches with owners and managers? 
100%. I think where I start to see a disconnect is usually most companies are pretty good at knowing their closing volume, opening volume, cancellation rates. It gets a little bit cloudier, particularly if they've centralized some of their order entry or title exam or closing teams. And by that, what I'm suggesting is it's just harder for them to assign a dollar value to what that means per business unit or per transaction. The other place that I typically see title agencies step a little bit farther away is from that overall profit and loss statement. And there's different controllable, at every level, there's different controllable expenses that you know, a branch manager could be responsible for. And a lot of times it's not being pulled back to that level. And that's usually where I find the most money on the table. There's a, a lot of value in knowing what your number should be as far as closings per headcount. Picking away everything in between your overnight charges can be exceptional. In states where you can pass that cost through, you want to make sure at every level your staff understands that. And that's where the metrics can be so valuable, particularly if you can go back and there's something that really resonates with the employees as far as, you know, even at that front line, that an overnight mail charge, they'll understand that each of those components is critical, but probably the profit and loss is the one where I see more focus should be placed than it is in most businesses that I've been in and around. I'll tell you another one that we're hearing a lot about lately. The owners, a lot of times, who have been a little bit more detached from operations, from the nuts and bolts of getting transactions done, you know, they've been running the business, now through this pandemic crunch, and even the refi leading up to it, they've been so busy for so long a lot of them now have had to get back down in the production weeds and they look at for example the usage of their software platform while they weren't touching that every day before now they are and they're getting they're very frustrated because on the front end of a purchase of a new software package they had all these wonderful goals and ideas then things got implemented and sort of didn't get revisited to see where the extra efficiencies could be gained. And they're very frustrated now because they're seeing how this day-to-day operation is going and it's not that much different than before they made the investment in the software. I would imagine that folks are coming back to you like they are to us and saying, help us make this better. I just didn't realize how far we had fallen away from our goals and our usage on what could be utilized is so far off the mark of what we know can be done. Are you seeing a lot of that? I think that's always been happening. I I, kind of like it. I think that may be one of the positive features out of what we all lived through over the last year. I mean, and that's, it's not any one technology platform in particular. I think each company suffers that. Some of the experiences that I've seen over the past few months, even things like latency issues where employees may have made mention of it and until you're in the trenches and you see that it's taking 40 seconds to click from screen to screen, that's a real tangible cost in production, overtime hours. That's one example of many of things that we've seen that could really positively impact a lot of companies as we come out of this. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so we talked about some disruptors and you you started by giving a great example of Realtor.com and how, we won't say how many years ago you and I started in the business, but in the day, every Wednesday, the new MLS book would come out. And that's where agents built their showing schedule and tour schedule, and they memorized. I wish I had a visual of one for people that weren't in the business then of how business was done. And and people at that point, disruptor wasn't the buzzword in those days, but how are we going to make this better? How are we going to improve? And it was, well, we could put this online and, and 
folks said, well, the realtors who have control over the start of this whole thing, that book is what guarantees that they are needed in this transaction. They're never going to release that information out to the internet so that buyers can do a lot of pre-shopping for themselves. It's easier to see how things can evolve over time when it's someone like the real estate industry that we work closely with, but we're not so close that we, we can't see. Walk us through some of those things that were disruptors along the chain. Realtor.com really launched in 1996. The first iBuyer company also launched in 96, which is pretty interesting because that's really similar to your corporate relocation models, which have been around for a very long time. You know, it was always kind of a protective buyout offer. So, I mean, what do you have now? Open Door, OfferPad, I think Redfin does one. Zillow came out with one. So you've seen a lot of those. Zillow is a company called Homelight, which was launched in 2012. And they're using data and algorithms to find the best performing agents in each market area. I think in the past, kind of similar to that MLS book that you were describing, the referrals were made based on kind of who you knew and who they connected with and that referring agent would get a commission. But how great, now we're gonna drive business to the best performers. And isn't that the best source? I think there's also at least three that are doing things so that they either do short-term loans or they're making guaranteed buyout offers. They're doing different things so that a person who's not necessarily a cash buyer because they have a contingent home to sell can still go out and appear as one using one of these different platforms. Right, which can be super important in a <laughs> give your best offer right now and better make it pretty well over asking price. If you look at some of the deep pockets that have been around in the real estate industry forever, I mean, it certainly took some money out of those, but I sort of like it in that it made it more fair for the consumer so that it's more of a level playing field. It allows more people to enter and really to, you know, find the best of the best throughout a lot of this. And I think that's what's really nice to see as you see some of this change and disruption. Sounds like each one is doing a pretty good job with a certain market segment, but we haven't yet seen sort of that giant equivalent of an Amazon or an Uber. But the people, largely the consumers that each one of these niches is for, suits that group really well, but might not suit another group. One that I wanted to ask you about is Picasso. That was one that maybe a lot of people haven't heard about. It just launched last year, and it's more of that brain power that we keep talking about. It was the former Zillow CEO, Spencer Raskoff, and then the Dot Loop founder, Austin Allison, who launched it. And what they're doing is they're setting up an ability for people to go into collective ownership of a second home. So essentially they're selling shares. It's usually an eighth of a share. And they're able to buy pretty impressive houses. Kind of the thought behind it was most people can't afford to buy a second home or a second home of the magnitude that a lot of people might be interested in. But when they split that to an eighth of the property's value across different owners, it enables them to have that. So essentially they own a share of it. And then they help to manage both the bookings of that. They do the annual upkeep on the property. I think they charge a 10% fee at the time of purchase, which is part of their revenue stream for that. So like they set up an LLC and 12 or 15 people you don't know, but have an interest in, in the same property, either as a vacation home and or an investment property. So they're doing like a true fractional ownership. And then if you want to 
put it on Airbnb or you know wherever, then Picasso <laughs> is assisting with all of that. They are. I don't know the technicality of if it goes on Airbnb or if it has to be for their primary usage, but that one's definitely interesting and something that we haven't seen. But it does make sense because you know, particularly if you think about a second home, a lot of times even when you're purchasing that, you can't use it more than a week or two a month, just given work schedules or family and kids schedules. It'll be interesting to watch to see how it takes off over the next couple of years. Yeah, it's a really unique concept. And then coming out of the realtor space, looking in the lending space, Quicken certainly changed the game with a rocket mortgage. Now we're seeing some other, I would say, non-traditional lending companies. Here I'm thinking of like a SoFi that are now at least getting into the refi state. These are folks that have an interesting channel that they're bringing to it because a lot of their borrowers have done student loan consolidations through them and it's all online. It's a neat app. That largely online method of at least loan application and, and sometimes lending all the way through. If you are a traditional loan officer sitting at your desk waiting for borrowers to come through the doors at the bank, you would feel very disrupted in that model. Is that fair? I agree. I, I'd add Loan Depot to that list. It used to be you'd use a loan broker or you would go walk into your local neighborhood bank office. And I think now what you're seeing is, is far more people doing everything online where you never necessarily meet anyone. You may never even have a phone call. And I think that's something that we should all be keeping an eye on because none of us thought would go in that direction as quickly as it did. And making sure you're in the provider streams for those companies are very important. And it can feel a little daunting. You think, okay, how do I call 1-800-whomever and make sure that they understand if they've got a deal in my community, I'm the right person to service that. That's so much easier to do with your local bank or even loan broker and certainly credit union, that sort of thing. But when you're trying to get on a provider list for a national company so that you're not having 10, 20% get shaved off the top, that can require a very different marketing posture, right? You, you can't swing by and take them some donuts. Exactly. That's the other thing is know where your business is coming from. Who are your biggest lenders? Who are the new ones entering? What do you need to do to keep them happy? There's just so many dashboard light indicators to keep your eyes on right now. And then we hear all these snapshots out there, well, this is going to be the next big thing. And your average owner doesn't have time to monitor all those and and figure out sort of which basket to put their eggs in. So that's why I was especially interested in having this conversation today of which are kind of the, if you had to, you know, pick two or three types of businesses, maybe not the businesses themselves, would you, if you were a title company owner today, keep on your radar screen the most? Well, I think it's not necessarily going to be one big Uber that's going to come in and take over. I think it's going to be a blend of different things. There's definitely a place for some company to come in and help improve the interaction that we have with those lender operating systems. I think that, you know, there hasn't been one that just has stormed the market in the past. There's at least one that tried. Some of the others that are coming into play are pretty interesting. A lot of analytics models. I think some of these closing companies that are national are ones to keep an eye on because I think they could get picked up quickly by some of the lenders that we were just talking about. There's a lot more affinity for them 
to want to go to someone that can help them in all 50 states that they're doing business or any fraction thereof. Those are ones where I would definitely stay well-educated on that. In addition to those types of things, I would definitely make sure that if you aren't today, know what all those benchmarks are within your business that you want to keep an eye on. And that could include remote notarization. If there's new or different from your operations teams, if there's new or different lender operating systems that are starting to come into play, what are those? How are they working? Where are the pain points? Making sure that you're keeping an eye on how your technology platform's working. What's working well? What isn't working well? Where can you partner with the companies? So that if there's pain points there, how can you overcome them together? What solutions are there? You know, what are other companies doing? It's kind of a mixture of different things. I always go back to the compliance pieces. That's probably what scares me most in the chairs that I've sat in over the last few years. It's all okay until it isn't. And then when it blows up, it's going to really blow up. So you want to make sure that you're in front of that. I can give real testimony to your concepts there. Again, being in the technology space, certainly over the last 18 months, we've continued to do updates and enhancements and new features and functions. And if people could look up to hear that what we were describing as new functionality, new integrations, whatever it was, they'd go, okay, great. And they were heads right back down, just handling the business of the day. So a lot of that over the last, that's been put out in the last 12, 18 months has not yet been consumed. Those sorts of things already exist. You don't have to put them on a punch list or an ask list. They're there. It does take some time to understand what they are, understand what they do, and whether or not they can be a benefit for you. But there's lots of low-hanging fruit there. And that's if you are super vigilant in staying current and contemporary with updates and new features. There's a lot of times a three to five year lag between what, in in this example, a software company puts out and when a title or settlement agent really consumes that. I mean, they may take the update, but not employ any of the new features or functions in it. It's very easy to get this huge gap between what the software can do and how you're currently using it. And that's sort of a free, easy, low investment and potentially a lot of gains to be found there. And I have to think that there are corollaries in other parts of the business too, that you just haven't been able to put your head up and look around and see what's available because you've been so busy hauling the mail, getting volumes of work out the door. But the fundamentals of running a business and keeping it up to date can just naturally slide during that. This industry has just been insane the last couple of years with the increase that we saw in volume. And then, I mean, literally, like every business overnight, we had to turn almost every employee into some type of remote employee. So it really took a drain. I think as we're starting to re-enter things, and we all want to think as we, you know, normalcy, hopefully we're getting back there. I think what's critically important is what are your top five things that you want to focus on? There's 50 things that need to be done. You can't do all 50 at once. So you want to make sure you're aware of what's on your list, but then prioritize your list and make sure that you're doing it in a reasonable amount of time and staff. What I've seen almost universally is that employees in our industry right now are tired. It's been a long couple of years trying to add a list of 50 things for everyone to work on while you're still not catching your breath. Yeah. It's not going to happen. We, we could hurt ourselves even deeper right now in our industry. We're already worried about the silver tsunami, but if we age people other out more quickly than we were expecting, and I think that's a real risk for all of us right now. I think you've come up with the perfect solution though. Apparently you can teach 50 states of title and settlement in three easy weeks. So we'll just start that school 
And then people will be able to bolster up people's staffs. Absolutely. How hard could it be, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, you make a really great point in that owners know, even though they want to make some changes, better changes for their business, for example, have a new underwriting relationship, have a new JV relationship, because those are sort of the new black again, bring on new features or functions in existing software or change software. They are very hesitant to do that because of what you touched on the staff fatigue. They have they have said to me, if I try to implement this change right now, I'm afraid I'm going to have a revolt. So I really like the way that you position that of let's not go remake the whole world, but let's find two or three things that can really make a difference on one side of the profit equation or the other, either on the revenue maximization or the expense reduction that are going to help us through a feast or famine with rates going up, if things start to slow down a little bit, we have to be able to find a different equation. As much as I'm, uh, I'm driven by data and analytics, I think remembering the human side and how hard everyone's worked, there's nothing better than celebrating that with your employees and making sure, to, you know, whatever your personality or your style is, make sure you're bringing some fun for them. And fun doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be a bonus. It has to be something that just lets your employee know that they're absolutely an asset to you and to your business and not just a you know liability on your balance sheet. I think in a lot of that for me in my experiences has been just a personal connection, a thank you. Uh, I think that stuff's just absolutely critical right now. Exactly right. Well, and I know you consult with a lot of different companies and a lot of different size companies. Are there two or three common places that you find money laying on the table, either things that aren't big being measured appropriately or maybe they're being measured but not acting on appropriately are there are there two or three key places that a lot of title companies tend to either look past or not look as deep as they should in understanding what's going on there does tend to be a lot of commonality across companies i brought up the mail charges earlier definitely keeping an eye on those is one place to start another place that i've seen across a large spectrum has been not watching what the company fees are. A lot of times what I've seen is that your employees will start to short different places in that just to try to balance a file. So be aware of that. It doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong or it's bad, but you want to keep an eye on that because what has happened to me historically is that it really will be a handful of employees that start doing that and they'll train other employees and pretty soon the whole team is doing it. So I always want to know what should I have collected to what did I collect? Some companies are really good at this, but I also always want to keep an eye on my overtime and what I'm paying in that. A lot of companies at one end of the spectrum, they very tightly manage that. Other companies will just kind of have it be a carte blanche. I had a team that used to work Saturdays for me, and I used to intermittently go in on Saturdays. And the first Saturday I got there, they were all together sitting at one person's desk watching old Seinfeld reruns because it was unmonitored time and they'd been getting away with it for a long time those three would be a place to start. I always want to give the employee the benefit of the doubt and I want to make sure they see the metrics and the data and understand what I'm looking at. And I want to ask questions for understanding. I don't I don't want to just make assumptions, but you know, that showing up on a Saturday was, I, I'd already seen the metrics. I knew what wasn't happening because I didn't see him turning orders. So I kind of knew what I was going to find. One thing that I think uh, a lot of us have experienced as consumers over the last year, year and a half is a surprising willingness by the the p- 
people that we do business with individually being willing to renegotiate some pricing. Early on, the um, some of the PNC insurance companies gave a rebate of premium dollars for vehicle insurance because they all knew we weren't driving. But in the in the world of loan forbearance, where we th- used to experience some pretty rigid rules, people at least right now are, are willing to be in a, in a better state of negotiation with us. So I would think it might be a good time if you're a business owner to go back and look at some of your contracts or pricing with people you do business with and see if there's some room to be found in there. There's always value in looking at your vendor contracts. I think part of the challenge is, you know, the title and settlement industry has kind of been squeezed so tight for so many years, asked to cut their fees, asked to, you know, reduce different components. And yet at the same time, they were asked to add more and more and more services on, do it faster, do it more efficiently, less error. You know, my, my beloved data and metrics have fewer errors. That takes staff, that can be tough. Some of the vendors have already come out with what I would have thought historically was your highest and best, but make sure it still is. I think there's no harm annually in relooking at a lot of that to make sure that you're still cutting edge and that you don't have any aged agreements where it's pricing from 20 years ago as opposed to current pricing and what you could get. That's the old cable company model, right? If you're a new customer, we're gonna give you great pricing and if you're an existing customer that's been putting food on our table for a while uh, forget it and to your earlier point it often is far much more about the relationship than it is the dollars and cents but by golly the dollars and cents matter too absolutely i think the conversations are good for you and they're good for your vendors if you know if your insurance agent knows that you're going to go out and you're going to price them every year when it comes time for renewal they're going to work hard for you and make sure that they're giving you the best most competitive pricing for the product that you need. I want to believe that a lot of the vendors have kind of price compared with each other so that there's some type of, hey, fairness, if you will, for some of those old historical models is what I'm referring to, not price fixing. That would not be good. And with that said, I think right now it's so hard to hire people in our industry that most title companies are likely overpaying for positions and that's going to be tough as we try to normalize over the next couple of years. Because I think if you do the old beloved P&L analysis, we're going to see our payroll expenses are going up somewhat significantly. It doesn't mean you're getting bad people. You're just getting more expensive people. Yeah, you're going to have to figure out how to offset somewhere. I mean, you may, to your point, may very well have to make that critical investment right now. But what other dials can be turned to keep your profit margin in line with, with where you need it to be? Probably one of the big ones on the table too. As an industry, you've always wanted everyone sitting beside us in the office. Do we really need that? Or can we release some office space? I'm of the opinion in some scenarios, yes, we can. And in other scenarios, absolutely, we shouldn't be doing that. Make sure you know you understand from other companies where they're doing that and making those kind of decisions. I think you've given them some great ways to start to get their feet back in that space, but also have helped to educate people on the types of things to keep their eyes on the horizons about. None of us are saying, hey, you're going to get disrupted out of business next year. This is not a fear-mongering type of thing, but we have been around long enough to be pragmatic enough to know that shifts happen. And in some cases, they're going to happen to us. In other cases, they're going to happen around us. But I think all of them can happen with our engagement and influence and, and helping steer that. Do you think that's fair? 
I think it is. Hopefully I can leave you with this. This is a really exciting time for us. I don't see this as a doomsday. I don't see it as a one size fits all with the change that's going to take place. I don't think, you know, this company's all like that. I don't think you're going to see a 100% success rate, but I also don't think you're going to see a 100% failure rate. I think some of these are great things that are happening for us as title and settlement industry employees and owners. It's better for our employees and I think it's better for the consumer. So I think there's a lot of opportunity and excitement as this happens in and around and with us. I agree. I think just about any time is a good time for change. And with as we can see the improvements in our sister industries, I think it only behooves us to sort of look at that with the same open-minded and, and arms open approach, not to run into the arms of everybody that comes along, but to, to really weigh and balance them. I know that you do that all the time. And I know that you help companies do that. So on behalf of everyone listening, I wanna thank you for bringing that expertise to us today so that they can hear some of the ways that you go about with analysis and action steps to you know, improve the fiscal health of a company. Absolutely, my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that it gave you some new insight and things to think about. As the world is ever evolving, it's good to try and look ahead and chart your course within it. If you'd like to reach out to Tish directly, her email is linked in the show notes. She just might be able to help you with today or tomorrow's business challenges. Until next time, remember, you're smarter than you think, you're stronger than you know, and compared to the rest of the craziness going on out there right now, we've so got this. Oh, you didn't think I'd forget, did you? No, I could never forget. What you do really does matter.